Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree, a sycamore fig tree, to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Hallelujah. His word is good. Zacchaeus was short, unlike that guy who just read for us. Thank you, Jonah. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan, and we're uh, in a series that we have entitled Abide, the Practices of Grace. You know, and if you're going to abide somewhere, which is really what this series is trying to help us see, is that you live somewhere, meaning that there's something in your life that's giving you home, that's showing you hospitality, something where you, you kind of you make your bed. Right? It's where you live. And so coming into this place of abiding, this place where grace is the norm, is such a crucial part of Christianity. Right? Do I live within the space of grace? Does it shape my life? Does it shape my mental world, the way in which I see reality and relationships and work and sexuality and power. This practice of grace is what the church is supposed to be about. You know why? Because that's what Jesus was about. We're a community that wants to know him better. And we want all of our life to revolve around him and his reality. If Jesus is who he says he was, then this should change the fabric of this community that all of life is going to begin to revolve around him. But if he was just a guy, if he's just some fellow who showed up in history who had some unique things to say, and he had a disposition of love, and he was kind, but he met some unfortunate people, and he was kind of the victim of an accident at the end of his life, then we should really disregard what he has to say. But if he's the Lord and if he's king, then we practice and we abide with him. And so that's what this sermon series has been about. And we're a couple away from finishing. I think we have three practices left, three or four. And this week, we're looking at the practice of Christian hospitality. I would love to encourage you to get a specific book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The author's name is Rosaria Butterfield. Here's what she says. Practicing radically ordinary hospitality is your street credibility with your post-Christian neighbors. It allows you to listen, to keep secrets, to be a safe friend, and to speak a word of grace into dark places. The invitation to bring people who despise you into your home may sound like a horrific 
prospect. One option is to build the walls higher, declare more vociferously that our homes are our castles. And since the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we best get inside, thank God for the moat, and draw up the bridge. One option. The other option is to lower the bridge and to open the door and to pull up a chair and to bring somebody into your life, into your home, into your table. And that is the practice of Christian hospitality. Hospitality is opening your life and your home in love to people who are different than you. Simple definition. Opening your life and home in love to people who are different than you. Butterfield defines it as using your home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors family of God. There is little in this world as disarming as a shared table. A meal together has incredible power to bond people who are very different. And of course, we live in a pretty volatile world of insiders and outsiders where suspicion is the air we breathe and where lines are commonly drawn around us versus them. At the table, there is no us versus them. There's actually only us. That's why the table has such power and such potential. So the practice of Christian hospitality is opening your life and home in love to those who are different than you. They look different than you. They believe different than you. Most likely, they behave differently than you. And as she wrote, it's the first step in establishing your street cred with people who may assume that Christians are narrow-minded, outdated, or even dangerous to society. When you share a meal with people, it changes things. In fact, when you look at some of the qualifications for people who are considered leaders within the church, you go to what are called the pastoral epistles in the New Testament. There's a a list of character attributes of people who are going to serve as leaders within the church. Do you know that hospitality is actually one of the list of characteristics? This is from 1 Timothy 3.2. It says, now the overseer or the elder is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, and then one of the last ones listed is hospitable. The word hospitality comes from a Greek word which means love of stranger. Leaders within the church are supposed to be the pace setters for loving strangers. I mean, we live in a society where if we loved strangers, things would begin to shift and begin to change. If our church loved strange people, strangers, people who you're unfamiliar with, people who you live next door, but you've never actually engaged them, I'm guilty as charged as well. We live in a moment where it's difficult to engage with people who are different, who don't just kind of flow into our lives. But what would it look like to invite them into your home and into your table out of deep love. Powerful. So that's what we're looking at, is the practice of this. It takes practice. You ever gotten good at something worthwhile really quickly? Anybody in the room? We've got some prodigies in the room. It happens from time to time. But anything worthwhile takes practice. And practice means it's not easy at first. You have to learn how to do this, to open your life and to open your home and to invite different types of people to sit at your table, to cross boundaries. Jesus was phenomenal at this. And so that's what we're going to look at from uh, Luke 19. 
Three things for you. Number one, scandal, story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Number two, belonging. And three, restoration. So all this under the practice of hosting people in your life and in your home, at your table, scandal, belonging, restoration. So under point one, scandal. Uh, Most people inside and outside of the church esteem the life and ministry of Jesus. What I mean is pretty much everybody respects him, that he was somebody who could speak life and compassion into different types of people and different groups of people. So there's generally a respect for Jesus. Jesus was remarkably gifted at speaking dignity into the life of other people. But what shocked the system and then repeatedly caused controversy were actually the types of people that Jesus affirmed, the types of people that he spent time with and sat at their table. Scott Sauls, he says, if you were sick, poor, sexually damaged, or paralyzed by guilt and shame, for example, Jesus would move toward you and tell you what nobody else would. You matter. This was the disposition of Jesus. If you were unwanted, if you were unwelcomed, if you were unlovable, Jesus had his heart tuned and his eye was bent towards you. And this probably more than anything else in Jesus's ministry led to the accusation that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This comes up a lot in his ministry. And you may remember that one of his favorite people, If Jesus had favorite people, I guess it was one of his disciples. Jesus had 12 men that he brought into his life. You know that one of them's name was Matthew, and Matthew happened to have the occupation of a tax collector. One of Jesus's closest companions was Matthew the tax collector. And after Jesus calls Matthew to follow him in the story, Matthew goes, you want me to follow you? All right, I'll follow you. And Matthew, his heart is warmed by Jesus's invitation. He throws the party and guess who he brings? The text tells us that a large company of tax collectors is there. In other words, Matthew brought the boys, right? Matthew's like, this guy's loving me. Hey, y'all gotta come meet this guy. And Jesus shares a meal with these men. And then the book of Matthew tells us, quote this, that the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This is important. To which Jesus replies, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is such a key insight into Jesus's kingdom dynamic. I have not come to call those who are well the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All of this is a bit of Jesus's background, who he spends time with, the accusations against him. One of his key men, one of the 12, in fact, is a tax collector. And then in Luke 19, we come across this famous story of Zacchaeus and Jesus. So look at Luke 19. We read this, verses 1 and 2. Jesus entered Jericho, small but influential city. Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. Look, as a, ta- as a tax collector, you work for Rome. This meant that this was a guy who's working for the enemy. He had a quota that he had to meet each month. 
he had to give a certain amount of money to Rome. Once he got that money to Rome, he could keep whatever else he, he was able to exploit from his friends and from his neighbors. This guy was as an exploiter. This was somebody who could take advantage of people. He took advantage of his own neighbors, which meant that his neighbors did not like him very much. This is kind of a white-collar crook. He is getting wealthy on the disadvantages of other people. He is taking advantage of the poor and the weak and the powerless. White-collar crooks don't go very far. This guy is completely alone, which is actually why you find him up in a tree all alone. It's not simply because he's short and he couldn't find a way to peek through. It's that nobody was going to let him through. Every time he came up against the crowd, pretend Zacchaeus is behind me and he wants to see Jesus in this direction, most likely people were kind of doing like, boom, give him a little elbow. They're not letting him through. So he goes, I got to go a little bit further down. I'm completely alone up in a tree trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. And we're told that Zacchaeus, of all of the tax collectors that we meet in the Gospels, Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector, which meant that he was the local ringleader. This guy's like the mob boss. This guy's at the top of the local multi-level marketing scheme. I mean, he is the chief tax collector, which is why he's alone, which is why he's also nobody's friend. Nobody's a friend of Zacchaeus. The point of all of that is that avoidance and exclusion would have been expected because of who he was, the job he kept, the character that he displayed, his lifestyle, his choices, all point to a verdict of being marginalized and ignored. But the text tells us Jesus must stay at his house that day. Look at the text. It says must Jesus was going to Jerusalem. He's only passing through Jericho. He's not staying in this little city. He's got other places to go. He's actually got bigger things to accomplish. But the text tells us this beautiful detail when he has a conversation with this unwanted man. Zacchaeus, I'm passing through, but I must stay at your house today. Francis Spufford, he writes, lost people arouse Jesus' particular tenderness in all their varieties, people whose bodies or minds don't work properly, people who one way or another fall foul of purity rules, whether it's their own doing or not, people who live beyond the usual bounds of sympathy because they are ugly or frightening or boring or incomprehensible or dangerous, people who are not like us whoever we happen to be, people who are not the right kind of people, whatever that is being defined as. I don't know what your definition of Jesus is, your caricature that you hold in your mind and heart of who this person actually was, but Jesus consistently shattered social norms. That was part of his issue. This is what he bumped up against in the Gospels. Five separate times in this Gospel that we're reading from today, in the Gospel of Luke, five separate times in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is undermined due to the company that he kept and the tables that he decided to eat at. Five times people look at Jesus and they grumble because of the associations, because of the people, the tax collectors and the sinners. If you go throughout Luke's gospel, you see a few other things. Jesus touched the lepers when nobody else would dream of touching somebody like that. You touch them, you become unclean too. Jesus touched them. 
Jesus passed through this region called Samaria. When none of the Jews would pass through Samaria, everyone else avoided it out of racially charged contempt. People hated the Samaritans. Jesus goes, that's where I'm going. He has a different mentality. He's breaking all of these norms. He invites Matthew to be one of his best friends when Matthew didn't have any friends. Jesus invites women to be part of his ministry within a society where the voices of women were so consistently muted. He is always breaking social norms. Brene Brown says this. Today, we're edging closer and closer to a world where political and ideological discourse has become an exercise in dehumanization. And social media are the primary platforms for our dehumanizing behavior. On Twitter and Facebook, we can rapidly push the people with whom we disagree into the dangerous territory of moral exclusion with little to no accountability and often in complete anonymity. Outsiders, so-called rebels, the irreligious, the unclean, and the unwanted, the other party, the other political party, the other culture, or the other color. People from the other side of town were and still are kept out. So when Jesus goes to eat in fellowship with Zacchaeus, the crowd grumbles and in a sense asks, why are you eating with that man? And Jesus' answer is blisteringly clear. I have come to seek and to save the lost. At the scandal of the table, and who he spends time with, part one. Part two, let's look at the theme of belonging. Jesus' decision to eat with people who are on the outside, these sinners and these tax collectors, it's supposed to be this blinking light. It's supposed to be like, look here, look at this man, look at the dynamic, look what's going on. He's different than you expected. Look at the way he lives his life. Look at the rules that he pushes up against. Look at the expectations that he defies. Look at this man, Jesus. It's supposed to be this blinking light. He's eating with who? He's spending time with who? Why would he spend time with those people? I mean, he's going through Jericho, small town, highly influential. You're telling me that he couldn't find anybody else in that little town to spend the day with. But Jesus says, I must spend time with you. This is a blinking light for us to go, man, man, let me spend some time paying attention to what Jesus is all about. In Jesus' kingdom dynamic, you don't find the elite, or you don't find the successful, the wealthy, the social power brokers. They're not at the front of the line. It's not the top performers who are offered a seat at the table. The kingdom of God, note this, is not about good people and bad people. The kingdom of God is so much more about humble people versus proud people. Jesus is not coming going, who are the good people? Who are the influential people? Who are the ones who can take me to the top? I'm going to spend time with them. Jesus doesn't do that. He's looking for the broken. He's looking for the humble. He's looking for somebody who says, of course, nobody wants to be my friend. Jesus goes, I'll be your friend. I'll bless you. I must spend some time with you. This is such a beautiful aspect of who Jesus actually was. And I want you to remember, our society is stratified We understand who's at the top and who's at the bottom. This society was highly stratified. People would work really hard to jockey for privilege 
jockey for power and position. There's this interesting little story in Mark chapter 10 where James and John, two brothers, again, two of Jesus' disciples, they plant this little bug in Jesus' ear. They're basically like, look, Jesus, things are going pretty well. And if the Jesus train keeps going, we would like to remain on this train. And so they come and they have this private conversation. They go, look, when things really begin to escalate and you kind of are risen up to power, can one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left? And you understand what they're saying. They go, look, we would like to be recognized. We would like to belong. We would like to be associated with you. If you're going somewhere, then can we get just a little bit closer to you? Of course, the conversation gets back to the other 10. They're not very happy with these two brothers and the type of little conversation they're having on the side. This doesn't go very well, but it's so typical is the point that they had misunderstood what Jesus was about. He's not about power. He's not about position. He's not about inside conversations. In any way, if anything, he's about outside conversations. He's about taking people out here and bringing them home again. Basically, what he's saying, you misunderstood what I'm about. When my kingdom comes, it's not about sitting on the right and on the left. It's about giving up your life. Men, are you prepared to do that, he says to the two? because that's where I'm headed. In Matthew 23, Jesus offers a warning to the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders. These are the elite. Here's the warning that he gives them in Matthew 23. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. That statement right there describes our society too. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by other people. Look, in a stratified society, one of the places that you would find the pecking order laid out clearly was in gathering for meals. When you would come to these public banquets, and you see it in Matthew 23, in the Pharisees' desire to be seated in a place of honor. Man, I want to sit in a place where people will notice that I'm at the head of the table. Now, of course, as adults, we don't think that to ourselves, but we're always thinking something like that. Who's in the room? How do I add up? I don't want to go to that thing because I'm never noticed. I want to go to this thing where people notice my name, and I'm valued. This is all about stratification, power plays, and also just normal human behavior. I would like to be seen and loved. But in this society, the stratification was clear around public gatherings, banquets, and meals. You see it in James chapter 2, where James writes against the sin of partiality. He goes, when people come into your banquets, you're giving the people who have power, clout, and money the best seat. Don't do that. That's not part of Jesus's kingdom dynamic. Anybody is welcome. Give the people at the bottom the seat of honor. Side note, company called Chick-fil-A, we're all aware, can't go eat there today. I'm very sorry, right? We understand this, but they have some beautiful company culture, right? And it's built around people at the bottom being lifted up. And I read their book on leadership. I think it was called, ready? My pleasure. Okay. (laughs) Um, But they talk about what they do when they take the people at the bottom who are just entering into the company, and they take them on business excursions and to conferences. And instead of seating the CEOs in the business class or in the first class, they put the people who are brand new in the front. 
in the first class. So when they walk in with their ticket and they walk into the plane and I, the story is told that they look to the back way down the aisle and the CEOs are at the back waving and they're like, the seat's for me. And they're like, yeah, that seat's for you. They're like, but I'm nobody. They're like, that's the point, right? We honor you. You don't deserve to sit in the front, but we seat you in the place of honor. This was Jesus's way, but this was not the way of society then or society now. Man, you see the pecking order laid out in the places that we eat, in the places that you eat at work, in the places that my children eat in their, in their uh, lunchroom at school. This is a place of worry before going to a new school. Our kids started new schools this year. You know what was part of the conversation? Was navigating the lunchroom. Because where we eat and how we eat matters. Anybody ever seen Ted Lasso in the episode with Nate the Great where he wants to get into the window seat in that restaurant? If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. He can't get the window seat because he's not somebody yet. It's all about stratification. But you see it in the ways we eat and with whom we eat. And meals, here's the key. Meals meant friendship. They mean it now, but they especially meant it then, which brings even better to light the scandal of part one and Jesus and his ministry. He is accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. And because these tax collectors, they worked for Rome, these fraudulent occupiers of God's promised land. And now they are the enemy of God's people. This meant that tax collectors weren't just betraying the nation. They were God's enemies. So here is Jesus Christ, God himself, having a meal with who? With his enemies. See, and that's the scandal of Jesus. That's what's going on in the text. People understand that. You're supposed to be somebody... We don't know if you're the Messiah yet, but you're certainly a healer, you're a prophet, you're unique, and you must stay with Zacchaeus, the white-collar crook. You're spending the day, the evening with him. Tim Chester points out that the meals of the Pharisees reflected a different type of ethic. If you wanted the best seat at the table, you earned it through moral respectability, or really a system that's governed by self-righteousness. Religion says that you get a meal in the presence of God when you have earned it. But Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. Belonging happens before he's ever done anything to earn it. Listen to this. Jesus says, I'm coming to your home, Zacchaeus, to be your friend, to eat at your table, and to save your life. Scott Sauls, he says, I'm coming to your house today, quoting Jesus. I'm coming to your house today, Zacchaeus, and there in your house and on your turf, I'm going to show you a love and a hospitality like you've never dreamed. Not so that you can feed me, but so that I can feed you. Not so that you can take me in, but so that I can take you in. See, and this association with sinners would only be possible because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. What's he going to do there? Die for sinners. 
See, he can invite these people to belong because Jesus is on his way to be cast out. Jesus can forgive their sin because he's about to absorb their sin. He creates a new dynamic of who's in and who's out because he's about to be kicked out. This is what the association is all about. This is why he brings people together because he goes, everything that you stand for, I'm about to absorb it in myself. And you know what's beautiful? is that near the end of this story, Jesus declares Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. What do you know about Abraham? Even if it's very little, biblical trivia would tell you that Abraham was the father of the faithful. And Jesus declares this extortionist, this guy who's scamming all of his friends. He goes, now you, brother, are a son of Abraham. He's going, me? Are you talking to me? I'm now considered a son of this faithful father. And he says, yes. I'm about to take all of that cheating, all of that lying, all of that extorting upon myself, all that you deserve. And when I do in exchange, you're going to receive my faithfulness, righteousness, and sonship, all that I deserve. He's creating a new foundation for belonging. And it's incredible. Right, the scandal of Jesus' ministry, who's inside and who's outside, and his willingness to host anybody. Look, it's Zacchaeus' home that night, but it's Jesus' love. He hosts Zacchaeus' heart that night, and it changed everything. So finally, thirdly, scandal, belonging, and restoration. Look with me at verse 6. Verse 6 says, so he came down at once, this is Zacchaeus, and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is important. Now you may hear in the gospels that Jesus spends time with tax collectors and sinners, but let me say this. Jesus does not simply come over for a nice glass of wine, a beautiful steak and a luxurious evening in this man's home. And then he goes and says, hey, thank you, Zacchaeus, for the evening. It's been fun to spend time with you. I got to go on to Jerusalem. That's not what happens in any of these meals. Jesus loves Zacchaeus way too much for that to be the extent of his time with him and his hospitality and his visit. Remember this. Jesus always meets people where they are, but he loves them too much to allow them to remain in the situation where he finds them. You see that? Jesus meets people, but doesn't go, hey, man, it's been so good to be with you. Pats him on the back, says, I'll see you next time. Jesus goes, let me host your entire life. I am not here just to kind of rearrange a few things. I would like to reorient everything. That's what happens in the Zacchaeus story. Rosaria Butterfield, again, she says, we can't obey Jesus until we have laid down our life with all our false and worldly identities and idols. We can't obey until we face the facts. The gospel comes in exchange for the life 
that we once loved. But when we die to ourselves, we find the liberty to obey. The first part of that line, look at it again. It says, we can't obey Jesus until we have laid down our life with all our false and worldly identities and idols. I think what she's saying is that your life as a Christian will never experience the vibrancy of transformation until you recognize the deformative things that have pulled you away from the true king. Those worldly identities and idols is what they describe them. The things that you bank on, the places that you call home, the places that you abide where you get your deepest meaning. If it's not in the God who made you, then it's in something that's second best. And if many people in this room have been in the church for a long time, you've been around Christianity for a long time, but there's a part of you that says, I don't feel it. I haven't experienced this good news and this gospel, this grace, this transformative thing, the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Why not? Could it have something to do with that quote? We can't obey Jesus until we have laid down our life with all of those false and worldly identities and idols. Zacchaeus, again, as the chief tax collector, right, his life was bent around money, power, success, privilege. But when Jesus called this man's name, invited him to belong, and hosted Zacchaeus' heart that night, Zacchaeus restores what he took from other people fourfold. You know, he's only required to restore it 20%. He, does, he has something going on in his life where he wants to restore what he took 400%. And then it's, the text tells us that he gives away half of his wealth to the poor and the marginalized. Immediately, things in his life change. What does he do? He adopts a new set of practices because his heart is being transformed. His my life was, one, was once bent in this direction. Now my life is going to be bent in this new direction. And the fruit of Jesus saving this man's life is this new set of practices, which is really driven by a biblical understanding of what repentance is. It's not about simply feeling convicted about something that we've said or done. It's taking steps to move your entire life and your attitude and your mental world in a new direction. And this is what happened to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus did this because, ready? He had never been as rich as he was when he had this encounter with Jesus Christ. And the wealth that he encountered that day when Jesus said, I got to stay at your house, had nothing to do with finance, had it everything to do with the wealth of riches, of grace and mercy and forgiveness and the end of shame that brought this sinner to a table. And he's hosted. And Jesus befriends him. If nothing in your life is different because Christ is in it, you might want to take a good hard look at this concept of apprenticeship. Everything changed in that man's life. It doesn't mean it has to happen as quickly as it happened with Zacchaeus, but it does have to happen. There's a process of change, a reorientation, where something new captivates your imagination because it's been hosted your mind, your heart, your will have been hosted by Jesus. So a couple of things as I wrap up. Hospitality basics. What does it look like for us to practice it? Number one, I'd like to say this. It looks like allowing Jesus to host your heart first. 
This is why we say we're a gospel-centered church. We don't want to give you a long list of practices to be able to go out and say, this is what it means to be a Christian. Actually, no. First, to be a Christian means that you allow the gospel to warm your heart. Jesus extends you hospitality before you ever extend hospitality to anybody else. Let Jesus host you. Sit with people who are figuring out what that means. This is what community in our church is about. You have these hard conversations where you go, I spend so much time thinking about money. I spend so much time thinking about that next step at work. I'm so bothered by my past. Something is occupying my heart and mind. What would it look like for me to take a step towards Jesus to allow him to host my heart? What would that look like? That's the type of conversation we want to be about. But letting him host you, finding hospitality from Christ, opens your life to a love of stranger. That's number one. Number two, this is so simple. Maximize the natural rhythms that we all have. Most of you have around 21 meals a week, 21 meals a week. There are 21 slots for you to decide, who am I going to share a table with? What type of conversation am I going to have? Am I going to keep it tight and only to myself, to the people who are like me, look like me, think like me? Or is the gospel going to open me to people who are different, ordinarily wouldn't talk to wouldn't cross the boundary line of our driveways and have an engaging conversation, what would it look like for you to choose one of the 21 per week to say, I'm going to engage with somebody who may not know the gospel, who may not know Jesus? You have 21 slots. The rhythm's already there. What would it look like to use your life and home in love to host somebody who's different than you. And then finally, can I say this without pretension? Trinity's growth strategy has very little to do with this space. It has everything to do with your space. Your kitchen, your table, your lives are what are gonna engage people who are on the outside of Christianity looking for a place to belong, wondering if the story could be true. Very little to do with Design 39 or Maranatha but everything to do with your life and your home and your rhythms and your choices with what to do with those 21 slots per week. Right? The growth of a community and bringing people in. Man, Jesus is going after people. And when he becomes the center of your life, you know what you start to do? You start to go after people. And you let them in on your hurt. You let them in on your brokenness. You keep their secrets. You become a place of safety and love because that's what the gospel provides simple practice of opening heart and home. It can be hard. Every one of our practices, I've shared this at our workshop, every one of the practices has a J curve, which means you will get worse at it <laughs> before you get better. It will be a struggle. Don't attempt to create a Pinterest experience for somebody in your home. Just open it up. Let it be tough. Let it be messy. Let it be honest. But let it be a place of love people sense something different. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the practice of hospitality, and we thank you that you are a hospitable king. It's ironic in some ways because you didn't have a place to call home. The scriptures tell us over and over again that Jesus, the king of kings, Lord of lords, the prince who came from heaven, he didn't have a home or a bed or a pillow to call his own, and yet he was the master of hospitality. 
He would make his way into somebody's life. And he would use their territory and their turf and flip it. And they would leave feeling so loved, encouraged, and seen by Jesus. Lord, we need that experience ourselves. We want to be people who are hosted by you. There are parts of our hearts that are so hurt, very fragile and tender. And Lord, and you look at our stories and you simply say, you matter. That's what hospitality is. It's looking somebody in the eye and saying, you matter. You are different than me. You believe different than me. You live different than me. You look different than me. But you matter. Jesus, give us more of yourself, more of your spirit to heal the places in our heart and our homes that need healing and enable our homes and our tables to become places where strangers become friends. And then friends are welcomed into the family of God as Jesus breaks in. Use us in that way. In your name we pray. Amen.